Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a 60-minute town hall broadcast of Monitor Monday. This morning, we'll have updates on the coronavirus from our panelists, and then we'll answer questions from you and your colleagues. As we go on the air this morning, President Trump yesterday extended social distancing guidelines until the end of April. In the meantime, there are 139,000 confirmed cases, with a death toll expected to reach 100,000. We have much to report on the coronavirus, and on today's 60-minute broadcast, you're going to hear from Brock Slabach. Brock will report on the dire situation facing rural hospitals. The global epidemic is spreading to the wide open spaces of rural America, threatening the very existence of hospitals, caregivers, and patients. Former CMS official Matthew Albright reports on the historic $2 trillion CARES Act. It was signed into law on Friday in response to the coronavirus outbreak. Sean Weiss reports on contingency planning in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Healthcare attorney David Glazer continues his reporting on the legal risky business when it comes to COVID-19. Alan Fink-Savner reports on how some hospitals are responding to the homeless showing up at emergency departments. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel reports on how auditors could use the coronavirus to deny claims. And we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. I'm going to go fast, so please keep your hands and arms inside the car as we proceed. Um, I'm going to start off with some non-COVID news. Um, Last week, the district court in Connecticut issued a decision in the Alexander versus Azar case concerning observation appeal rights. Now, the um, document is 104 pages of legal mumbo-jumbo, but the bottom line is that the judge has ordered um, that that patients who are placed as inpatient and then changed to outpatient via condition code 44 would get immediate appeal rights. Now, we're waiting to see what CMS does, but it's uh, certain that they're going to appeal this, so for now, nothing needs to change. Now, on to some COVID updates. It appears the MACs were still sending out targeted probe and educate audit requests in midst of this pandemic, claiming they were obligated to meet the terms of their contract. Uh, CMS was notified about this, and last week um, they told the MACs to stop. So they will be paying all of those. A faithful listener, Sheila, pointed out that the NUBC guide on the use of condition code DR states that the code should go on every claim for every COVID patient but the CMS instructions state that the code should go on claims where payment is dependent on a formal waiver, such as a SNF patient without a preceding three-day stay or a critical access patient whose stay exceeds 96 hours. I consulted with regulatory specialist Valerie Wrinkle, who agrees with me that NUBC is wrong and CMS is correct. Now, we know the three-day stay is waived for SNFs, but that doesn't mean that SNFs are accepting patients. Some still think that the COVID Um, must be affecting the community in the hospital 
And that's not true. If the hospitals or SNFs are in any way altering their operations, and that really should be every facility in this country, the waiver applies. Some want negative tests, some have outbreaks in their facilities, but one facility has a different reason. They indicated they do not trust providers to send qualified patients, and they do not trust CMS to pay them. So they're requiring the three-day stay. Interestingly, the day after they notified um, hospitals of this, they reversed course after a hospital informed the state health department that they were doing this. Now, while hospitals are filling up, another solution was proposed by a case management director. Kareen Schnorkian in New Jersey suggested that patients needing non-COVID hospital care who are currently in a SNF and need to be admitted could actually go directly to an LTAC. LTACs are acute care hospitals and they have full capabilities and they can waive the 25-day expected length of stay. So this might be worth talking to your LTAC to see how they can help you. Now we're already seeing what I'm gonna term COVID collateral damage. These are patients with chronic illnesses who are avoiding necessary medical care for fear of COVID. One cardiologist on Twitter reported that five of his patients have already died at home for that exact reason. Now, as you all know, data on COVID is changing daily, but one thing is clear, the mortality rate for those who require mechanical ventilation is frighteningly high, with some reporting up to 70% of patients who require mechanical ventilation dying. Many hospitals are drafting protocols to decide who gets a ventilator if shortages develop. And sadly, some hospitals are analyzing the data to determine whether any patient with COVID who is paced on a ventilator would automatically be DNR. They're suggesting that if resuscitation is 100% futile, they're under no obligation to offer it. So remember, while our providers put their health and safety on the line for others, they're also soon going to be facing huge moral dilemmas. Finally, more and more insurers are waiving prior authorization requirements for post-acute care some by choice and others being forced by their state governments. Unfortunately, I don't have a comprehensive list, so you're on your own to check with the plans in your state. That's it for now, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now is the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hi, Chuck, and thanks for having me. With social distancing extended to April 30th, we now know that we are in this for the long haul, or at least longer than anyone anticipated. The financial burden of social distancing forced unemployment and healthcare providers bursting at the seams has taken a toll on everyone. Quick good news flash. We do have a new testing kit from Abbott Labs that can detect the virus in five minutes. The CARES Act, as we all know, was passed, all 335 pages. The citation for the CARES Act is Public Law 116-136. I have found it easier to find the actual text if you look for it under House Resolution 748. On Saturday, CMS announced expansion of its accelerated and advanced payment program for Medicare providers. While CMS did not specify how exactly it said the CARES Act, you know, the $2 trillion stimulus package, supported its ability to pr- expand the advanced payment program. These advances would act as a loan, 
And during this crisis, very few questions will be asked if you qualify. To qualify, you've got four criterion. You must have billed, number one, for Medicare for claims within 180 days immediately prior to the date of signature on the provider's request form. Number two, you must not be in bankruptcy. Number three, you must not be under active medical review or program integrity investigation. And number four, you must not have any outstanding delinquent Medicare overpayment. So there's the catch, number three and number four. Number three being not under active medical review or program integrity investigation. Well, what under some sort of audit or appealing an audit? How many of you are participating in a TPE audit currently? You may not be eligible due to completely normal circumstances. A routine document request for a RAC audit could disqualify you. How many of you have been accused of owing an overpayment to Medicare, but you know that the alleged overpayment's wrong, that you really don't owe it, but there's an accusation of overpayment or billing noncompliance? You too may not be eligible for these advanced payments. Numbers three and four are my concern, and it should be yours. Even a routine MAC audit or a routine CERT audit or RAC audit or an outstanding Medicare overpayment that you disagree with may prevent you from getting these advanced payments. If you do qualify, CMS anticipates that the payments will be issued as fast as seven days within a request. Under the accelerated payments, most providers and suppliers will be able to request up to 100% of their Medicare reimbursement amount for a three-month period. There are no appeal rights related to these payments. However, administrative appeal rights will apply once after the coronavirus if CMS issues overpayment determinations to try to recover any balances or accelerated advance payments. While there are no appeal rights, there are talks of audits being stopped. Document requests may be released without review. I received an email from a provider over the weekend asking about TPE probes being stopped. It also, it asked whether the provider could disregard ADRs in hopes that claims will be paid. In an abundance of caution, please do not disregard audit requests. However, if you are in need of advanced payments and have an ongoing audit that may exclude you from receiving aid, please document your situation. Give the explanations why you don't actually owe the money. Even though you may not be able to appeal, you may be able to ask for an exception. And isn't that, in essence, the same result? Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about uh, 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Sandick, Matthew Albright, Sean Weiss, and Brock Slobach, standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's March 30th, and you're listening to a special 60-minute live edition of Honor to Monday, the COVID-19 Town Hall. Stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the current edition of Auditor Monitor, you'll discover why Chapter 8 of the Program Integrity Manual is a critical read for healthcare providers. Chapter 8 outlines rules that Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services must follow when determining administrative actions and statistical sampling. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Simply go to the Rack University Bookstore and place your order.
Subscribe now. Visit the Rack University Bookstore and order your annual subscription of the Auditor Monitor today. You're listening to a special 60-minute Town Hall edition of Monitor Monday. And remember to send us your questions for the Town Hall portion of this broadcast is coming up in about 29 minutes after the hour. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, what in the world could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. The telehealth changes are coming fast and furiously. And I'd make a movie joke, but I've never seen them. I guess all I can say is that the crisis might increase the consumption of VIN. So a couple of weeks ago, I described how the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act permitted CMS to allow Medicare coverage for telehealth nationwide during the crisis as long as the the call was on a device that had both audio and visual capabilities. Well, the new CARES Act amends that language from the March, March 6th law. Under the CARES Act, Secretary Azer now has the ability to issue a waiver for telehealth. What does this mean? Well, we don't know just yet because the waivers haven't been issued. However, CARES strikes the language that indicated that telehealth could only be provided on a device with both audio and visual capability. That suggests Congress wants to allow the Secretary to permit straight-up phone calls. I want to stress that has not yet occurred, but reading between the lines, I suspect it's coming. For weeks now, I've stressed the idea of emphasizing patient care over dumb rules. The good news is that by all accounts, the government generally seems to agree. During an American Health Lawyers Association teleconference last week, Gregory Dembski, chief counsel of the OIG, emphasized the government's willingness to be flexible during the crisis. That doesn't mean all rules are waived, but regulators generally have common sense. Mr. Dembski also noted that because the OIG is working from home like many of us, they aren't able to receive any snail mail. And I think it's best to assume that no one is opening mail right now. So think electronically, not U.S. Postal Service. Speaking of working from home, but in the context of telehealth, there's one telehealth policy where, to date, CMS has not displayed the common sense we're seeing elsewhere. Uh, Although I'll come back to it, thanks to an update from Sean Weiss, I think this may be changing. So in early March, CMS issued an FAQ on on Medicare provider enrollment relief. Question 11 asks whether a distant site practitioner can furnish telehealth from his or her home. They can. But the answer then claimed that the practitioner is, quote, required to update their Medicare enrollment with the home location. So, do you need to do 855s for all your professionals working from home? I think that that FAQ is totally wrong. So, well before the COVID outbreak, CMS had issued a variety of guidance about the location at which services were provided. In an informal letter, CMS had instructed practitioners to, quote, use the address where they typically practice in Box 32. Then we've got Medicare Learning Matters 7631, and on page 9, it indicates, quote, if the professional interpretation was furnished at an unusual and infrequent location, for example, a hotel, the locality of the professional interpretation uh, is determined based on the Medicare enrolled location where the interpreting physician most commonly practices. Since CMS has long recognized that a temporary location need not be enrolled, it seems crazy to insist that during this crisis, 
the temporary use of a home office requires a new enrollment. Under the principles established in the recent Alina Supreme Court case and the brand memo, a Medicare overpayment has to be based on an NCD statute regulation. The principles in the FAQ don't even appear in a manual. And if it did, manuals aren't binding. So the bottom line is I think you could disregard it. But Sean Weiss called my attention this morning to something on the AMA website that indicates they've had conversations with CMS and CMS intends to update that FAQ soon. So bottom line, ignore that FAQ. Even if they don't update it, I think you're in good shape. You could always update your uh, your 855 next month. I'll also note the OIG has a link that allows you to tell them about legal conundrums so they can address them. Kudos to them. I don't think CMS has yet followed suit, but I'm hoping they will soon. Chuck, during this period of isolation, I hope none of us will have to call it another lonely day. I think we should trust our judgment and the advice of Fleetwood Mac. Go your own way. You can go your own way. Back to you. Thanks, David. That was David Glazer. David is shareholder of the law firm of Frederson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Sandwich. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and a very good Monday, all. Homelessness was 2019's top social determinant. The annual point-in-time count for last year had almost 570,000 people living on the street, and with 2020's results pending, ongoing increases are expected. COVID-19 has populations at risk for all of the determinants, especially those who are housing compromised. Homeless are three times more likely to have underlying or chronic health conditions and are at risk of acquiring, carrying, if not dying, from COVID-19. The five cities with the highest rates of homelessness are in the state's hardest hit by the virus, New York City, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Jose, and San Francisco. Hospitals are reconciling discharge planning headaches courtesy of COVID-19 with planning for patients with no formal residence challenging. Communities do take care of their own, and here's how they're flattening the curve for the homeless. First, New York, Illinois, and other states are providing portable toilets, hand-washing stations, and showers. Shelters are developing screening tools to assure social distancing and proactive care guidelines for residents, including taking temperatures and monitoring vitals. Tent medicine is now all the rage. Tent cities are being built daily so far in Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and Tampa, Tampa, far safer than returning to shelters or being housed in emergency rooms. Philadelphia's Holiday Inn Express is among an expanding list of hotels to house homeless who test positive for the virus. Many cities are now following Baltimore's lead with guidance for hospitals to ensure proactive assessments of housing upon discharge to prevent unsafe community reentry and provide safe alternatives for isolation, including specific discharge protocols defined for hospitals to assess housing status, 
and facilitate transfer to isolation sites or emergency shelter beds. First, before discharge, any person's discharge pending COVID-19 test results or confirmed cases, the hospital should complete a housing environment screen to see if individuals can self-isolate at home. For those persons being discharged when COVID-19 is not suspected, the hospital can coordinate discharge to an emergency shelter by directly contacting the mayor's office in Baltimore of Homeless Services. The National Coalition of the Homeless, Aunt Bertha, and 211.org have also updated their resource listings. You can read my upcoming story in Rack Monitor for more details and other resource initiatives. Now, this week's Monitor Monday survey asks, does your facility have distinct COVID-19 discharge protocols in place to assess patients' housing status? Yes, no, don't know, or not relevant for my setting? Well, we'll see what you all have to say. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant and author, Ellen Vicksandrick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. You're listening to a special 60-minute Town Hall edition of Monitor Monday. And remember to send us your questions for the Town Hall portion of this broadcast coming up at about 29 minutes after the hour. Here now with the Monitor Monday audit report is Sean Weiss. And good morning, Sean. Chuck, thank you. Good Monitor Monday to all. In the book, The Art of War, Sun Tzu states, plan for what is difficult while it is easy. Do what is great while it is small. As a compliance officer, My job is not only to focus on policy and procedure, but to develop contingency plans for each of my clients based on their size and geographic location. As with OAG compliance, contingency plans are not one size fits all. Each plan has to be tailored to the organization and the individuals that make it up. And since during a crisis, I am not going to be there to hold their hands step by step they will have to depend on their training and what they retained during education sessions prior to the crisis to ensure they come out the other side just fine. The key to creating a successful contingency plan is scalability. I think we've all learned a significant lesson with COVID-19, which is no matter how small your company, how long you have been in business, and what sector you operate in, a contingency plan is an absolute must. The steps your team must take during an emergency need to be written and in plain text that is easy to follow since they will most likely be used during the actual emergency. If you make things too convoluted or difficult, people with no real training in disaster recovery will improvise, which is when things go from bad to worse. I advise clients and my team that when writing a contingency plan, write it on the level of a fourth grader since people's minds are not fully prepared for how to react and what to do during an emergency. Not everyone has received first responder or military training to teach them how to adapt, improvise, and overcome. So again, use the KISS principle. There are always primary objectives regarding the establishment of a contingency plan. First, minimize damage through containment. Second, continue to function as closely as possible to normal. Third, determine best how to work with those not prepared. Fourth, your plan must be fluid and able to adapt. Fifth, monitor and update your plan often since things and environments are always changing. And finally, 
consider whether you are a rural or urban area, whether you're along a fault line or in a coastal area, since this will have direct impact on your planning. The four keys to contingency planning are safety, communication, backup and recovery, and finances. But don't forget the what ifs. This Thursday, I will be publishing an article on developing and implementing a contingency plan. I hope you all get a chance to read it. Thanks, Chuck. And back to you. Thanks, Sean, very much. That was Sean Weiss. Sean is a partner and chief compliance officer for Doctors Management. You're listening to a live 60-minute town hall edition of Monitor Monday. And now's the time for the Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright. The Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Celis. Celis is a market-leading provider of claims, cost, and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain healthcare claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thank you, Chuck. As we've heard on this broadcast, the president signed the CARES Act on Friday, a piece of legislation meant to support and stimulate the economy in the wake of the coronavirus to the tune of over $2 trillion. Now, there's a lot of parts to the CARES Act, but what I'd like to do is concentrate on elements that will affect healthcare organizations and their employees. And I'll divide those elements into three parts. First, provisions in the act that will assist employees in the healthcare industry as employees. Um, Two, provisions in the act that will assist hospitals, physicians, dental offices as employers. And three, provisions in the act that will affect the delivery and payment of the actual healthcare. So first, provisions in the act that will assist employees, and, and really these provisions are not particular to just healthcare employees, but rather apply to just about everyone even those that were unemployed when coronavirus hit. So you've heard about the direct payments to everyone who makes less than $100,000 a year. So we won't dwell on those, but there's also a tremendous amount of money being set aside for unemployment compensation, including a short-time compensation program triggered when employees are asked to take a cut in hours as opposed to a wholesale layoff. And in terms of individuals, there are also waivers on fees for withdrawing money from your 401k if you are affected by the coronavirus. And those with federal student loans will not be required to make any payments on them for about the next six months. Now, for provisions in the CARE Act that will assist healthcare hospitals, physicians' offices, and other organizations as employers, first, there's $100 billion in the act to reimburse healthcare providers, in particular, for lost revenue in situations where a provider has given diagnosis, testing, or care for individuals uh, with possible or actual cases of COVID-19. Now, if your organization doesn't qualify for that particular assistance because, say, uh, you're not directly caring for patients with COVID-19, but you are still negatively affected, for instance, Maybe you're doing uh, mostly elective procedures, which, as we've talked about on this broadcast before, have been prohibited in many states. In this case, the Act gives a lot of assistance to companies with less than 500 employees. For example, there's a loan program for small businesses with actually very few requirements to get approved for the loan. And that's designed to help, you know, get out the payroll, pay rent cover employee health benefits and and other items in order to keep those doors open and and your employees paid. In many instances, these small business loans do not need to be paid back. 
The Act also has other provisions that apply to all companies, big and small. There are payroll tax credits if your business has been reduced by the virus and a number of other tax benefits for companies in general. So here's some other areas in healthcare where the CARES Act is sending money. The Act provides $1.3 billion to community health centers. $250 million is being made available to entities that are a part of the hospital preparedness program. There's also monies for HRSA, for telehealth and rural health activities, and funds for tribes and tribal health service providers. Brock Slavak with the National Rural Health Association will touch on the rural health issues in the CARES Act right after me. Lastly, there are a number of provisions to give a boost to the supply of medical products, such as masks and rep respirators, and, and to avoid the risk of drug shortages. Now, for provisions in the Act, that will assist in terms of billing and payment of healthcare specifically, payers are already required to cover testings and vaccine for COVID-19 and, and to prohibit cost sharing for testing. In the CARES Act, payers are told to pay in-network providers the negotiated rate for testing, and for out-of-network providers, payers can negotiate or pay the, quote, cash price of the testing. Now, providers are expected to publish that cash price of the test on their website. And the Act also touches on Medicare reimbursement provisions, and, and most of these are a benefit for providers. The Medicare sequester is eliminated from May through to December. I know we had a question from the audience on that. There's also a 20% add-on to the DRG rate for patients with COVID-19. Medicare is also expanding its hospital accelerated payment program to include children's hospitals, cancer hospitals, and critical access hospitals. Now, Nicole covered the criteria for that program earlier in this broadcast. The act will also hold back on cutting about $8 billion in Medicaid disproportional share hospitals, DSH cuts, over the next two years. So, Chuck, a lot of moving parts, a lot of money, but the CARES Act has something for healthcare employees, their employers, and for the healthcare sector in general. Back to you. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. You're listening to a special 60-minute Town Hall edition of Monitor Monday. Monitor Monday is a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Stand by. Learn how to use a data-driven, targeted approach for the prevention and management of complex DRG denials. Learn how to secure revenue by utilizing existing resources and reduce the cost burden associated with denial defense. To find out more about the prevention and management of DRG denials, register for a Rack Monitor webcast coming your way April 8th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. You'll learn how to mitigate immediate revenue loss and protect the future financial health of your facility with an effective DRG denials management strategy. Register now to attend How to Prevent and Manage Complex DRG Denials. This timely webcast features Andrea Taylor and Dr. Adrian Martin. Register now and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. COVID-19 is spreading out to the wide open spaces of rural America, threatening the very existence of hospitals, caregivers, and patients. Here now to report on the dire situation facing rural hospitals is Senior Vice President of Member Services for the National Association of Rural Health, Brock Slavok. Oh, thank you, Chuck, and uh, good morning, everyone. 
I think it's important to start off talking about what uh, was going on before Corona, uh, before Corona, and that was that 48% of hospitals in rural areas were operating at a negative margin. And as of uh, last week, we had 128 hospitals that have closed in rural communities across the United States uh, since uh, 2010. Uh, this has uh, created uh, fractures in the rural uh, environment that have, in fact, just widened since we have experienced the COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, COVID-19 has exploited longstanding weaknesses of rural health providers in terms of workforce, technology, and, of course, reimbursement and finances. We have in rural communities going on what I call the COVID paradox, which is that due to CDC and CMS recommendations uh, to discontinue all elective and non-emergent care, we have rural hospitals all over the United States that are in fact vacant, having no business and hemorrhaging cash. A rural PPS hospital in Missouri is uh, losing $4 million a month on current trends. Uh, we have rural c critical access hospitals that are losing $100,000 a day due to this lost uh, uh, revenue. At the same time, we have epicenters of COVID outbreaks in Batesville, Indiana, and Lutcher, Louisiana, these two uh, places are experiencing surge of patients and are actually uh, experiencing what uh, some of the more urban New York City hospitals are facing at the moment. So we have a real uh, pastiche around the country uh, regarding uh, this problem. So the COVID-19 uh, response was uh, met in the Phase 3 emergency funding bill known as the CARES Act. And as was mentioned earlier, we see that uh, there is grants and aid that are going to be made to hospitals, the accelerated payments uh, that CMS will be organizing. And then, of course, we have the Small Business Administration Loan Program to nonprofits and to for-profit facilities, less than 500 employees. Uh, we were and we are interested now in coordinating those benefits so that, uh, for example, if a small rural hospital receives an SBA loan uh, with, uh, with uh, loan repayment uh, options uh, to exclude, to, to basically make it so that they don't have to repay their loan, uh, that that doesn't lead to an offset on revenue or in terms of uh, payroll expenses for the hospital's cost report in the critical access hospital context. We are very excited also to know that uh, rural health clinics and federally qualified health centers are now able to be distant sites for Medicare, for purposes of Medicare telehealth visits during this emergency period. Uh, up until this point, uh, these two entities, which compose thousands of clinics around the United States, were unable to perform telehealth visits uh, from these particular uh, types of clinics. This will be something that we're going to be watching and hoping that uh, CMS gets those uh, regulations out to our provider community very quickly uh, so that they can begin taking advantage of this important feature. 
Keep in mind that our rural health clinics and federally qualified health centers are experiencing the same problem due to canceling of elective and non-emergent procedures, and we do really want to make sure that uh, they can continue to operate uh, in serving their patients in this remote context. There's other provisions in the bill, as was mentioned earlier, but particularly a $275 million appropriation to HRSA, the Health Resources Services Administration, uh, to support telehealth efforts and to provide um, assistance to other programs of care in rural communities. So this sums up uh, much of what it is going on in rural health today, and uh, hopefully uh, this has been helpful in understanding the problems that we're facing and uh, how we're looking at solutions uh, to meet those needs. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Brock. That was Senior Vice President of Member Services for the National Association of Rural Health, Brock Slaubach. And now's the time for the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. Well, do you have distinct COVID-19 discharge protocols in place to assess patients' housing status? 21% of our listeners said that they did, and kudos to you. 8.4% said no. What was surprising was that close to 50% of our listeners said, I don't know. And for you folks, well, these are the most interprofessional times ever. And it is your opportunity to collaborate with and develop protocols with folks who are managing these patients, such as your care management and case management departments. 24% of users said not relevant for my setting. I expect that these numbers will continue to shift in the coming weeks. You're listening to a live 60-minute town hall edition of Monitor Monday, brought to you by Rack University, encouraging you to subscribe to the Auditor Monitor, now available at the Rack University bookstore. Also, remember to register for an important webcast on how to prevent and manage DRG denials. It's Wednesday, April 8th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Once again, here's Chuck Buck. Waivers from regulations, dire shortages of ICU beds, and the scarcity of gloves, gowns, and masks are all part of the new normal. As COVID-19 is generating misinformation, confusion, and concern among healthcare providers. And that's why today on Monitor Monday, we ask our panelists to respond to your questions in real time. Standing by, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Sean Weiss, Alan Fix, Samnick, Brock Staubach, and Matthew Albright. And Matthew, let's start with you. The CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Securities Act. Now, that requires that health plans don't have any cost shares for COVID-19 testing. Now, how would that federal requirement relate to or coordinate with state emergency orders on COVID-19 testing? That's a good question. You saw that the states were pretty quick to pass uh, orders, emergency regulations um, that required insurers to waive cost sharing for patients undergoing testing for COVID-19. So now the federal government with the CARES Act and with the Families First Act has, has kind of caught up and now has made that requirement nationwide. So, so pretty much um, even if you're, you're uninsured or you're insured, uh, you won't have to pay any cost uh, when you go get tested for COVID-19 and, and regardless of whatever the environment or context is for that test, whether it's an emergency room or, or a drive up or whatever you have. Um, but the thing is there are elements in some of those state laws that go beyond just prohibiting cost sharing 
in the case of testing that you have to kind of pay attention to on a state by state basis. So, for example, Alaska and Wyoming require insurers to waive any cost sharing for testing, yes, for COVID-19, but also for testing RSV, influenza, and a respiratory panel test. And uh, Massachusetts and New Mexico, for example, also expect that insurers will waive any cost sharing for COVID treatment and, and not just the testing. And I think we've seen also uh, nationwide that there's a number of national carriers that are stepping up and saying they're going to do just that. So, so the answer to the question is yes, now it's it's kind of a national mandate that there won't be any fees on the part of the patient when they when they get tested. Um, but looking at a state by state and, and even insurer by insurer rules uh, will give you a, a more idea of what other places the cost sharing might be waived. Thanks, Matthew, very much. David, let's take a look at some of the other questions that are coming in this morning. You bet, Chuck. And before I do, I just want to spend a second setting the table a little because I think people, this is super confusing, and so people are understandably puzzled by some of this. So it's helpful to understand the CARES Act basically set up a whole bunch of money for various things that Matthew did a nice job of explaining. It didn't change too many coverage laws. There's one notable exception I'll mention quickly, which, and there's even a question about this, which is home health coverage. So the CARES Act does allow physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and clinical nurse specialists to oversee home health, something that has not historically been true. But by and large, the CARES Act provides money and then the authority to grant waivers. So the authority to have a waiver doesn't change anything itself. And one of the giant complications is also, as Matthew was alluding to, you've got a state level and a federal level, and a federal waiver doesn't guarantee a state waiver. And then interpreting it becomes difficult. So, for example, if there's no copayment for COVID treatment, well, what about if you get a flu test as part of that? Is that part of the COVID treatment or not? And we're going to be figuring a lot of that out. I want to just emphasize the general principle, which is it's a stressful time, apply common sense, recognize that regulators are going through this the same way we are, and they likely will cut you slack. So now let's move on to some of the specific questions. Ron, I think this one's kind of for you or me. Does the SNF waiver apply nationwide or only where there is an emergency? And this actually comes from a a friend of Nancy Beckley's, our longtime co-panelist. It is nationwide. And as I mentioned, if you're really doing business as usual and you're doing elective cases and you have no COVID preparation, you probably shouldn't use it, but you can. Everyone's possible. Going back to the, the waiver issue, it's important for everyone to note that when the waivers are issued, the ones that have been done so far have been retroactive. So there are questions about telehealth by telephone only. We don't know if they're going to make put that in and make it retroactive. So I would advise providers to keep logs of their phone calls and rather than submitting with the current phone call codes, which are very low weighted, and hold it and see if we get a retroactive waiver that would allow you to use actual E&M codes to get paid for those visits. I think that's solid advice, Ron. So how are teaching facilities managing the teaching physician guidelines in light of telehealth and COVID? So I don't think much changes really with the telehealth stuff, because the basic principle there is that the teaching physician has to do his or her own work Um, And I think that's still going to be true. And so I don't envision a lot of changes on that one. Have the regulations around telephone consultations been lifted to include both established and new patients? The short answer there is that the waiver sets up that if you can do visual, 
Telephone consultations can mean different things to different people. If you can see the person, you can clearly treat it as an E&M. It says exactly like an E&M. I mean, that probably means everything's an E&M, including you're going to be limited by your small exam on the coding. But it's just like the person is there. Treat it like the person is there. If it's pure phone, listen to what Ron said. I suspect we may see coverage for that. We don't have it yet. Matthew, this one's for you, I think. We've heard that the 2% sequestration was going to be lifted. Is that true? And if so, is there a specific date? It is. And uh, according to the CARES Act, that starts in May. Um, So I imagine May 1st and goes through till December. I think there's an additional question that says, does that May to December, does that encompass the data service or the data payment? And I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think the CARES Act makes it clear. So again, something from CMS that we're hoping for guidance. I also just want to chime in one quick other point on the waivers, which is some waivers actually waive rules and others give you the permission to request a waiver for a rule. Again, super confusing. As you sort through this, all you can do is try to read it and then understand, is it federal, is it state, and is it an actual waiver, or is it a request for a future waiver? All right, Ron, this next question is for you. Was there a CMS guidance on utilization review in the hospital? I could swear I saw it, and I can't find it. No. Unfortunately, you still have to evaluate patients to determine they're in the right status, which I assume is what the question was about. So we still have to look at in versus OBS and consider whether the need for hospital care is there, documented, and get them in that right status. So this is for the whole panel. Has anyone heard about payers besides Cigna and Humana that are forgiving co-pays and deductibles? Yeah, this is Sean Weiss. In the work that we've been doing uh, on behalf of our clients, we've actually been able to confirm that the majority of the commercial insurance payers, including Sigma, Humana, Aetna, United Healthcare, and Blue Cross Blue Shield, have agreed to follow the issued guidance of CMS with regards to the waiving of copays and or deductibles if that's the choice made by the practice. Again, I would suggest that you check with your insurance companies in your particular states and for any of those sub-agreements that you have with, for example, the managed care organizations, the point of service, just to ensure that there's nothing wonky between those. And David, it's Ron again. Let me add another caveat that CMS is giving providers discretion to waive the patient's copayment or coinsurance. That's a lot different than an insurer agreeing to pay 100% of approved charges. So CMS is putting the onus on the providers to only accept 80%. So you got to watch and see what the private insurers are doing. Are they going to pay 100% or are they going to pay 80% and you can choose to waive the co-payments? That's an excellent point, Ron. It highlights the difference also between prohibiting the collection of a co-payment and then permitting the waiver of a co-payment. So for example, CMS has also permitted the waiver on telehealth services. You are not required to collect the co-payment on a telehealth service. You can collect it on a general telehealth service. It's a waiver, not a prohibition. Nicole, I got two questions for you here. So first of all, I was just notified by NGS this morning that TPEs and ADRs are canceled, and I'm in Massachusetts. I guess that maybe is a statement slash comment, but do you want to comment about that? Yes, I do. First of all, things are changing every day, so keep up to date on CMS guidance. They are actually keeping up-to-date, minute-by-minute updates on their website. But right now, survey activity is supposed to be limited to immediate jeopardy complaints, 
or allegations of abuse and neglect, complaints alleging infection control concerns, statutorily required recertification surveys, initial certifications, and revisit necessary to resolve current enforcement actions. If you are undergoing an audit that does not include those reasons, you may have an argument to be accepted during this time. But again, nobody knows for sure, and you need to stay updated. So, Nicole, is there any information on RACs extending their deadline for submitting medical record documentation for audits? Well, I haven't been able to find that information specifically, but given the CMS guidance on generally stopping surveys unless they're immediately necessary, one would think that if you need an extension, you would be granted one, but there's not an out-and-out rule. I think we've covered this one pretty well, Ron, but just as the three-day stay waiver only apply in emergency situations, CMS isn't 100% clear on this. Every hospital, every nursing home, every critical access swing bed, rural hospital swing bed, it applies. All right. They've got several patients in our hospital in Texas that are waiting to qualify for Medicaid so they can be discharged to long-term care. We've had no success in working with local nursing homes to take these patients during the crisis. I think this one's for you, Ron. Any suggestions on the types of patients that are occupying acute care beds because we don't have a safe discharge plan for them? You know, again, talking to your state health department, I think, is one of the best things that hospitals can do. State health departments license the SNPs, and if you have a problem getting beds available for sick people, the health department could step in and push the issue. So I would try that. There's a question here. What's the correct facility address on the 1500 claim for a professional charge on a regular telemed visit done at an approved site for a home location that's being temporarily allowed? So that is up in the air right now. I would say use the address where the service were typically provided. I think new guidance should be coming from CMS on that today to confirm that you can do what I just said. Uh, In the meantime, that's what I would recommend. I have to address one question that, because I know we're regulatory, but I want to talk about the medical side of things, because a lot of people are hearing a lot about chloroquine for COVID. Because I've got the audience, I just want you to understand that we need to keep our objective of science, not hope. The study that was done in France is so bad that it wouldn't be accepted to be published in Highlights magazine. (laughs) So we really need controlled trials. We need to see a group getting the medicine and a group not getting the medicine. The treatment that they propose is benign if you're taking it chronically for lupus, but taken together with Zithromax, we have seen reports of patients going into ventricular tachycardia from toxicity from these medications. So please temper our expectations and let's wait for the science. It's going to happen soon, but we need to keep our patients safe. That's an excellent point, Ron. I've got a question for you in a second, but I'm going to start with this one. I read something this morning that Medicare will allow reporting of office visits using audio only. This would not limit us to billing the G2012 only when the phone is being used without a visual component. Have you seen this same guidance? So the short answer is no, I haven't. I think one of the useful things you can do is if you see guidance on this, you can feel free to send it to me, but always evaluate your source. Try to focus on things directly from CMS as opposed to secondary sources. I think, as you kind of heard from my segment, I think this is coming. The CARES Act allows CMS to do that, but I have not seen that it happened yet. So, Ron, this next one is definitely up your alley. We've asked CMS to defer on the IMM and Moons, and we received a no. 
We're concerned our staff must deliver the notices and want to protect them from potential exposure. During this crisis, some are going to be missed. Can they audit us? What do you have to say? I would say follow David's advice and do what's safe. It is very clear you can deliver by telephone. So the case manager, you are staff, registration does not need to go in the room, whether they're in isolation or not. And document on the form and have a nurse give a copy of the form to the patient. If you miss one, I think it's like in normal times. I would document that it was missed make sure that the patient's rights were honored, there wasn't any controversy, and just proceed on. You're not going to get audited. You're not going to get cited. Do we have to specify in the chart the exact location of the provider rendering telehealth? I'll let anyone correct me if I'm wrong, but I know of no such requirement. If anyone thinks I'm wrong, speak up. There is no actual requirement for documenting where this service actually took place, but as a best practice, we are making a recommendation that there is something notated in the chart note that the provider was rendering this service from their home. But there is no actual cited requirement. So why do you think that that's a good idea, Sean? Because I don't know if I would include that in my note. For several reasons. But the main one is because even though the government has come back and said they're not going to audit the telehealth services to enforce the component that the patients are established There is nothing that they have released to say that they won't look to ensure that these services were rendered either at the practice location or at the provider's home, because those are really the only two locations where they're specifying that these services should be rendered. That's the reason why we're calling it a best practice more than a requirement. I'm not sure why you would say that they shouldn't list it, David. Obviously, you're the attorney, so I'll defer to you on that. No, you don't think you should defer. You know, I'm just thinking of it from a, you don't generally talk about where you do the service, right? I mean, like, that's not something usually that appears at the note. The note doesn't usually start with, I saw the patient in my office. Because that's the typical, and we're in very non-typical times. That's the only reason why. And again, I think because we have to use the O2 place of service as one explanation, And then depending on the payer, you either have to use the modifier 95 or the G modifier, uh, depending on the payer. Again, for us, it's a best practice, and that's what we're making as a recommendation, just to kind of dot the I's, cross the T's, and give the payers less opportunity to quibble over another aspect of trying to make a recoupment down the road. That's why. So this one's maybe for you, Sean, or for Ron. Do you think CMS will relax the 30-day requirement on H&Ps since many surgeries have been delayed or canceled, or will they require a new H&P to be done on providers, on patients, since many of the delays will far exceed the 30-day limit? They will require it still. 30 days is a medical issue to make sure the patient's condition hasn't changed and they're safe to undergo the procedure. So I would see no reason they would waive that. I agree 100% with doctors. And I've learned to always agree with a doctor. So are there other hospitals that are using a barometer to enact the waiver? For example, our incident command, we use 85% capacity, but we're now reevaluating that to our ICU capacity instead. And I'm not sure I totally am tracking with that one. Maybe someone else is. I think it's, uh, is there a point at which you'd stop accepting admissions, I think is the question. That has to be coordinated through your, again, through your state to, to stop admissions is a pretty heavy thing to do. You know, you to divert ambulances, so... It's way beyond, I think, our purview here. Chuck, I think we're coming up on the top of the hour, so I will turn it back to you. Thanks so very much. And that's all the time we do have for questions and answers. And I want to just remind everybody, if your questions weren't answered live during this broadcast, we'll make every effort to answer those questions this week. 
And we thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Dr. Ron Hirsch, Alan Fink, Sandwich, Sean Weiss, and Brock Slobach, who reported our lead story. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Shelter in place, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.